So that was a long reading. And the reason it was a long reading is that this is actually the very first time that we hear from the Apostle Paul in Scripture. We have... We just hear, like, odd comments before this. But this is his first speech. And um, Luke, being a very careful uh, compiler and writer, has kind of led up to this in the way that he's composed the book of Acts. And so this speech has special significance as an announcement of what God has done up until this time in Acts, so it includes the Gospels and the history before that. And it is noteworthy that um, in this first section from verses uh, 13 through to 22, that what he does is that he recounts the covenant history of the nation of Israel, at least up until King David. And... Uh, the, the different things that he speaks about, our fathers and then the dwelling in, e- in Egypt, the exaltation in Egypt, uh, then being thrust out in the Exodus, and then all the way up until uh, the anointing of King David after the rejection of Saul, shows that God is faithful to his covenants. What he said he's going to do is what he did. So the, in the Abrahamic covenant, the promise was, of course, that God was going to raise up from the aged Abraham and the aged Sarah a nation to himself, descendants, literal descendants. And that, of course, became the 12 tribes of Israel and uh, the history that we know through the Old Testament and into the New. And then, of course, uh, the uh, Davidic covenant is spoken of with David being the man after God's own heart. Saul wasn't. Saul was the people's choice. And even though we read here that God gave them Saul, there's some irony in that because uh, God allowed them to have the man of their choice. And it wasn't a man of God's choice. In fact, they didn't ask God, is this the guy that we should have as our king? Uh, they thought they were competent in and of themselves to choose the right guy. And they didn't choose the right guy. Because, of course, they, like us, are incompetent when it comes to uh, these kinds of matters. We need to see what God says about these things. So they got the wrong guy and uh, took a wrong turn for 40 years. And eventually, God chose David. And from the line of David or the dynasty of David, um, Paul skips over a thousand years to the time of John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. So I'm not going to say very much about the first point. In fact, that's that's what I have to say. So there we are, the first point's over already. So you were wondering when Steve was reading this, oh my goodness, this is going to be a three-hour sermon because he's got all of this material to get through. Well, there you go, you see. I've just jumped over a good part of it. Um, From verses 23 to 33, Paul gets into the meat of this speech, and it's a very daring thing that he does. 
He's in a synagogue, so it's full of Jews and um, God-fearers, people who are very concerned with the things of the law and with tradition and with the rabbinic way of doing things. That's in the, uh, the time before the rabbis actually started to dominate things, but still traditions were most important to people even at this time. So let's have a quick look at what Paul does. Verse 23. From this man's seed, this is David, according to the promise, uh, according to the promise, that is the covenant made with David, God raised up for Israel a savior, Jesus. So what uh, Paul's concern is here in the synagogue is with a savior, a savior. Now, not necessarily Christ is a king. David, of course, was a king. But the picture here is that of a Davidic uh, ancestor who is going to be a savior. Now, what this does is it, it kind of puts together uh, all of the sayings of the Old Testament that speak to a coming conqueror, a coming deliverer and redeemer, not just of Israel, as we will see, but also of the world. And this, we know from Old Testament prophecy, is the person who will be king also in Israel. But notice the the emphasis on the Savior here. Jesus. Now, he's in uh, Pamphylia. He's a long way away from Israel. These people probably would not have heard of Jesus. Okay? Many of them would not have heard of all of the commotion and so on that, that went on 20 years or, or less um, before this time with the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth. So Paul is proclaiming to them news, as it were. And so far, so good. But then he does something quite daring. He mentions John, John the Baptist. Now, they probably would have heard of John the Baptist because he was kind of a a bigwig, a big name in uh, Israel in the ancient world. He's even mentioned, by the way, by the the Jewish historian Josephus in AD 90. So that's a long time after Paul's speaking here. And John is mentioned in the annals of Josephus as being an important and historical figure who drew great crowds. So they may well have heard of John the Baptist, but if they've heard of John the Baptist, what else would they have heard of? They would have heard of the rejection of John the Baptist by the leaders, by the Pharisees and the, the scribes, wouldn't they, you see? So Paul is, is being a little bit, uh, you know, daring here in introducing John the Baptist as the one who came to announce and to baptize this individual uh, through his preaching of repentance to Israel, verse 24. Verse 25 says, John was finishing his course and said, Who do you think I am? I am not he, but behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. Now, John the Baptist, like I said, was a famous and imposing figure. Jesus became famous, but 
as I said, what happened to Jesus and the commotion that happened would only be known uh, in these far-flung regions, uh, incidentally, by a few people. And so what he's doing is that he's pointing to someone who John the Baptist said was the real deal. This is the one. This is the person. You may not have heard of him, or you may not have heard very much about him, but this individual, Jesus, he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises of a Davidic ruler and of a savior going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, the seed of the woman who would conquer Satan. Now, this is, if you think about it, this is kind of ironic, isn't it? That the one who would to be king in Israel, even though he didn't take the throne because he was rejected, and the one who was going to be the redeemer of Israel and the redeemer of the whole world is such a, an unsung figure that he has to be announced, he has to be introduced. You would have thought God would have made more than this so that, so that everybody all of the Jews and perhaps all of the Mediterranean world would have heard of Jesus. This was an easy thing to, for him to announce. They could, he would just say the, the name Jesus. They would know who he was talking about, and he would have a connection with his audience instead of having to introduce him. But that's not the way God does things, you see. God very often, that's the way I'd do it. That's probably the way you'd arrange it, but it's not the way God does things. God does things Okay, quietly very often. He does things surprisingly. He does things in ways that we think, well, that's never going to work. You know, you need to get somebody in, an expert, expert or something, to, you know, up your game a little bit. But no, this is, uh, this is what God wants to do. He uses Paul to proclaim Jesus here. Men and brethren, verse 26, sons of the family of Abraham. That's connection with the Abrahamic covenant. And those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. So Paul here is uh, professing to be a messenger. Do you see? A messenger of God. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. Well, folks, Paul's on really thin ice here. Can you see that? Now what is he doing? Now he's accusing the authorities in Jerusalem. He's saying, those guys, those guys at the temple, those guys, the Pharisees, those people that you look up to and you read from and you you like their opinions about this, that and the other, they're all worthless because they're all ignoramuses. They couldn't even recognize Christ when he was right there in his midst. In fact, so much so that they condemned him. Because why? They didn't understand the prophets. They didn't understand the Old Testament. So much for their teaching. So much for their expertise. That's what Paul's doing here in a synagogue. 
there are some people there, I'm sure, you know, the, the little vein is coming up on the side of their heads and so on, as he's speaking. This is controversial stuff. Not only did they not know the prophets, they confirmed the prophets. In fact, they were dupes, as it were, willing, certainly willing dupes, in fulfilling the promise of God. God knew that these dupes would be there and that they would reject Jesus, and he used them in his prophecy, included them in there, that they were going to um, refuse the Christ. Now, when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, verse 29, they took him down from the tree. Oh, sorry, they delivered him to Pilate here, even though they knew that there was no cause of death in him, verse 28, sorry. And they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Okay. So they condemned Jesus, who was the one that was promised in the covenants, and they delivered him over to Pilate, even though they knew he was innocent. Notice that. Notice that. Not only did Pilate say three times that Jesus was innocent, but the scribes and the Pharisees knew that he was innocent too. Okay? That's important. Log that one away. Not for today, but for another time. And so they allowed him to be killed and laid him in a tomb. Full stop. End of story. That's it. Now what? No, not the end of the story. Now we get to the pivot in the speech. We get to the, the hope in the proclamation. This is where God comes in. But God raised him from the dead. This one that you've hardly ever heard of. This one who kind of slipped under your noses. This one who was rejected. This one who the scribes and the experts were ignorant of. God raised him from the dead. Yes, he had to undergo crucifixion. Yes, he had to undergo death. But God did something with him did something with him that has never been done before. Now, yes, Elijah, Elisha, Jesus himself, they were involved in the resuscitation, the revivication of corpses, but not like Jesus. Jesus is the first resurrection. Okay? These people weren't resurrected. Okay? They were revived. Life came back into them. Then wonderful miracle. That's not what Paul's saying here. He's talking about resurrection. And to a Jew, resurrection was at the end of time when God judges everyone and those that are worthy are raised eternally to peace and glory. What Paul is saying is that there's one person who's ahead of the crowd. There's one person who comes ahead of all of those of the end time who are going to be raised, and that's Jesus. And he's the guy, because God has raised him from the dead, that you better pay attention to. And he was seen for many days 
by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. It's talking about, of course, the apostles. And we declare to you glad tidings. Here's the good news. That that promise which was made to the fathers, back to Abraham, back to Moses who wrote the book of Genesis and so on. God has fulfilled this for us, their children. So he's talking very much to Israelites here. In that he has raised up Jesus. And I just want to again... Um, point out to you how God chose to announce this to the world. Just think about how you might have done it. You might have done it in a way that uh, the the news of the uh, the resurrection of Jesus was spread far and wide by everyone who was in Jerusalem. Because God made it absolutely clear because for, well, I don't know, weeks and weeks, there was Jesus in his glorified body, you know, ah, um, with a halo over his head and, and glory coming out. And he's just walking around, okay, Israel, talking to people, telling people himself about what God has done through him. That would have been a great way of getting the message out, wouldn't it? So that all of the, you know, people would have got saved, maybe. People would have certainly would have believed that he was there. And they would have gone and gone back to their homes in the different parts of uh, the Mediterranean. And everyone would know about this. That's, I mean, God needed an advertising executive, didn't he? He needed somebody who could market this. <clears throat> And because he didn't, Paul had to go around trudging around, introducing Jesus and talking about this in this very unspectacular kind of a way. But that's what God does. We can pause and say there's a reason for that, and it goes back to what I was saying actually about the Lord's Supper and the sacrifices of Israel. It has to do with the human heart. It has to do with our propensity Okay, to misinterpret and completely void the truth of what God is doing. We put ourselves and our self-righteousness right in the middle of, of things instead of not realizing that we're the problem. We're the trouble. We're the evil that God has to deal with. So God's not going to give us that privilege. He's not going to give us that prominence. God does not need a bunch of unbelievers and and, uh, religious folks going around saying, guess what I saw when I was in Israel last year? I saw this guy, they crucified him on the, you know, a Roman cross. I saw him and then he was walking around. Glorious, he's like a heavenly being. Everybody spoke to him, Everybody, and this is what he said, and this is what he did. No, he'd be treated like somebody who saw a UFO. It would not have been what God wanted. 
But what about this way of doing things? Okay? What about it? Is it going to produce any fruit? Well, we'll see. Paul now decides that it's time to quote the Old Testament. Verse 33, God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus, as it is written also in the second psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Okay, hold on. What's that got to do with anything? What's that got to do with things? Well, what Paul is doing is that he's introducing a psalm, a very important psalm. It's the first of the royal psalms, and it speaks about the chosen son who is going to be the ruler over the whole world. And what he's doing in quoting that, he's calling to mind, okay, that Jesus is not just the one proclaimed and rose from the dead, but this is the Son of God, the one who the psalm talked about. Do you see? So he's making that connection. And that he raised him from the dead no more to return to corruption, he has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Well, what is that about? Well, it connects him with David. And it connects him with the mercies on the Davidic line through the Davidic covenant. Remember, we've covered some of this. That is given by God to promise that this individual, this Christ, is going to rule Israel and the world for God in a kingdom of peace and righteousness that never ends. And he is the son of God. So what Paul is doing here is connecting these dots, okay, for who this one is. He's not just somebody who died and amazingly rose from the dead. But this is the Son of God. This is the Davidic king who was rejected, but he's going to be the one who Psalm 2 talks about, who's going to defeat all of the rulers of the world and who is going to rule the world in righteousness and justice. Do you see? Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. Okay, that one now hits home because Jesus is raised. Jesus has been resurrected and he is never again going to, he's not going to grow old. He's not going to need to go to the hospital or have a knee job or get fitted with glasses again. He has a glorified body. A resurrection, do you see? And that passage, they may have wondered, well, what's that about? What's that deal with? Because we know it talks about a line of David. Oh, I see now. It talks about this one who's in the line of David, this Jesus who is the Son of God, who God has shown to be the Son by raising him from the dead, do you see? And then he says, well, David, well, you know, his tomb's here. He, I mean, if you dig him up, okay, you're going to see a corpse there. You're going to see bones, okay? That's going to be David. He lied to David, R.I.P., and all of that. He's going to be there in the tomb. Jesus, he was buried, but now he's not there. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. Folks, 
he didn't see corruption. Now, we, um, if Christ doesn't come back, these bodies that we're in, they're not redeemed, they're cursed, they're going to die and we'll, they'll see corruption. They'll be a moldering in the grave, okay? That's what happens. Or, you know, there'll be some ashes on the mantelpiece, whatever. But not Jesus. And the fact that Jesus has been raised never again to see corruption is the guarantee in time, in this crazy world of death, that life reigns, that life rules, that life has already won the victory. So I don't be afraid of death because death's had its teeth pulled. Okay? All it can do is lick you. Therefore, here's the proclamation now. We've been waiting for this. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, and through that through this man, Jesus, the raised one, is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. This is what we need. No more sacrificial system. No more religiosity. No more wondering if I've done enough. No more... Uh, uh, being concerned with whether I meet the standards of the Pharisees and their interpretation of things or another bunch and their interpretation. God is willing here to forgive your sins. This huge weight of wrongdoing, this commission and omission of things in your life, and it's not a huge weight and you have never seen it, as a huge weight upon you, you haven't seen yourself for who you are. This evil that you've generated and you continue to generate can be forgiven through this man. By him, everyone who believes is is a... a, a, a courtroom term, as it were, justified from all things which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. There's the Mosaic covenant. That's the covenant we need to avoid, okay? That's the one that says, you shall. That's the one that says, you shall do this, and you shrink from, and you. it, it makes you kind of, I think I'll do this. Or you say, no point. Okay? What's the point? Okay, so I can't lie. Well, I've already lied. Can't steal. Well, I've already stealed. You can't covet. You can't lust. Well, I've already done all those things. So, what am I, I might as well just keep on doing them then, because I've done them. Do you see? It pushes you away from God. Well, now, you can get rid of that. Now, you can be justified without that. You don't need to look at those commandments and say, well, have I done this and have I done this? and Just get rid of it. Get rid of it. It's good. It's just not any good for you. You need something else to look at. You need something else that's true 
that is fitted for you and your sins, and it's it's belief in the raised, uh, sorry, the risen Christ. So there's a warning there. Beware, therefore, lest you, what has been spoken of in the prophets, come upon you. And then there's a warning from the prophets. So the Jews go out after hearing all of these things, and the Gentiles, there are certain Gentiles in the synagogue, and there were Gentiles who were hearing outside about this, and they want to know about this. And this is where the trouble comes. Verse 43, now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who speaking to them persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. That's not law. That's not thou shalt. Okay? There's no thou shalts in grace. And on the next Sabbath, they came together and Paul preaches to them and the Jews, oh my goodness, they get angry. They get jealous. They don't want this message about the Jewish Messiah. If Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, preach to Gentiles, my goodness. And what they do is that they show themselves to be complicit with the Pharisees and the scribes who killed Jesus. And Paul proves it in verse 47. Because he quotes from the book of Isaiah. So the Lord has commanded us. I have set you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. That passage, I made a lot of it when we went through this in the Old Testament. That passage is the same passage that says that the Messiah is going to be a covenant. Made as a covenant to raise up the tribes of Israel and also to give salvation to the nations. And obviously, these people were as blind as a bat coming in backwards the same way that the Pharisees were in Jerusalem. They did not know their own prophets. What's wrong with Paul proclaiming this, not just to Israel, but to the Gentiles? Nothing. This is important. And they should have embraced it if they knew God. But the Jews reject the gospel. Okay. Does this mean that the covenants, therefore, are frustrated? Because God made covenants with Israel, but they keep on rejecting and keep on rejecting, and even today they're rejecting. What does it mean? Well, it simply means they're rejecting the covenant. That's what it means. But does it mean, therefore, that God is all through with Israel, which is what's taught in so many churches and seminaries today? God's had enough of them, just discard them. No, that's the God of law. But the God who made the law realized we couldn't live up to the law, not the Jews and not us. And the same God that offers you grace in Jesus Christ is going to offer the nation of Israel grace and the world grace when Christ comes back. They reject him now, but it doesn't mean the covenants are frustrated. The covenants will be fulfilled. There will be, as I've said many, many times from this pulpit, there will be a kingdom of Israel. There will be a Messiah, King, who reigns from Jerusalem, all over the world. 
and peace and righteousness and joy will be pervasive throughout this world. It's going to get rectified. And how do I know that? Because Jesus has been raised from the dead. Do you get the connection? That's the signal. That's the signpost. That's the reality. It's kind of an anachronism. You know, that's a big, like, $30 word that means it doesn't fit in time. Okay? It's out of time. Nobody goes around in glorified bodies in our world, okay, apart from one guy, Jesus. And he ascended, but he was raised in this world. And that is the signal that this world is going to be transformed by that one who was raised. And it's going to be transformed to reflect that risen glory. So the good news is to believe in him. As we come to Christmas, uh, the Christmas story and, and uh, the messages that will concern us in the next few weeks, um, we'll be talking about the baby Jesus, and we'll be talking about the birth of Jesus, and we'll be talking about uh, the annunciations of Jesus, and why Christmas is important. But it's all one big story, and it's a story of hope. And it's a story of God's oaths. Don't forget God's oaths when you're thinking about Christmas, okay? The oaths will come to pass. They were made with sinful human beings, and God has signaled that he is going to fulfill every single one of them to you if you who believe. And if you don't believe... I can't make you believe. But here, listen to what I've said. Listen to the scriptures and think about it. And pray that God will open your heart to its truth. I'm going to close with a a benediction. This is the last of... um, this, this series for this year, we'll come back to it in probably mid-January. Let me close with these words from the book of Hebrews. Now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.